Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Hello and welcome to Gatekeeper. It's a podcast about booking and all that kind of shit. And there's cussing. So um, if you like cussing, you're in for some treats. No holds barred when it comes to language. Uh, although we, there are a few words that we uh, try to stay away from. And I'm way off track. I'm just going to dive right in. I'm excited about this guest. We're not doing a full intro this week. There's not like a whole long intro where I'm doing jokes and, and trying to tell stories and such. It's just me and my guest right here. I'm not looking him in the eye because I'm rambling and a little bit uh, self-conscious. I also have a different producer. Andrew's not here. We have Sean running the show. Sean, how are you? Great. Sean, uh, one thing that I need to do... Uh, in lieu of doing this intro, uh, the, to keep the thematic with how the show goes, um, we'll, we'll need to drop a sound effect right here. <laughs> so in post-production, they're going to put some sort of sound effect there to uh, yeah, because that's an important part of the show. It's not important, but it's important to me because it's enchanting and magical, and that's the kind of experience I want to create. Speaking of enchanting and magical, Josh Sandoval, who's looking right at me, don't say anything yet, your intro... You are a comedy producer. You are a comedy booker. You are a comedy writer. You do a little bit of everything. You're a modern day renaissance man. See, I like that intro. You say that wasn't an intro, but that's that's a pretty good intro. I went for it. I mean, I think it's this coffee talking. Yeah, no, I mean, is that coffee? I thought it was soda, but... Oh, I mean, it could, could be a Diet Coke or it could be an iced tea. Nice. It's well, homemade, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yes, I got uh, these plastic cups at home. I Like, I bought plastic cups. And then brought him to the improv. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Josh Sandoval, how you doing, buddy? Good, man. I'm still recovering from Montreal, but I do like that intro because I, it's so funny because I make fun of people who say they're like a director slash producer slash writer slash waiter or whatever you want to call them. And I call them slashers, but um, I am all those things. It's it's weird. I don't know how to describe myself, but you did a good job. You're, yeah. I mean... Um... I've known you for a while, and it's been cool to watch your career evolve in the last few years. Um, so you were in Montreal. I was in Montreal with you. You were. Let's give a quick overview of what that was like, and then we'll get to the, the beginning of your career. Yeah, it feels weird. Or, I mean, it feels right to be sitting at a table like this, a square table with you, but usually it's at, or it was for the past week, at one in the morning till about three in the morning scattered um with scattered paperwork and about four other people sitting with us discussing performances we saw of the press so we were hired um as tv set vetters for the jfl montreal uh just for last festival explain what that job is geez well i was brought on in june and um as soon as they got bookings for as soon as they started confirming people for montreal i started getting comedian assignments so uh originally there was three of us and some guy from the uk named ben and colleen who is all over the united states uh and me and we started getting comedian assignments and networks that they were going to be taping tv sets for and so usually on tv shows like you know uh, tonight show with jimmy fallon uh, colbert all these late night shows they have a comedy booker who goes over the sets that are going to be taped for the show. 
So we, uh, which eventually you came on, and we got these communion assignments who were going to be taping TV sets for six different networks. And we had to go over all the standards and practices with them. We had to make sure that their content was going to be evergreen so that the set could air you know, 11 months down the road um, and just make sure that it would be passable content for television. Explain what kind of TV content is produced at JFL. Um, well, they have six different networks this year, which I guess normally they have five or so, but the networks were HBO Canada and CISO all in the same one. Um, obviously, HBO Canada is in Canada and CISO is, you know, in the States. Um, and then there was Showtime, a Showtime special, a CW special, uh, the Comedy Network, and who am I forgetting? LOL. LOL, yeah, for Kevin is, Hart's network. And so all the, so every year, how many comics recorded TV sets this year? Jeez, I think it was probably around 300, wouldn't you say? So that's crazy. So 300 comics went to Montreal yeah. and over the course of a week shot sets that would be airing on all these various networks. And multiple comic or m- many comics were taping multiple sets, which is, you know, hard to keep track of too. I mean, everybody who was taping multiple sets worked with the same set vetter, but oftentimes I didn't even see some of the people that I was working with because there were so many comics, so many shows. We were all scattered throughout the festival. Like somebody I was really looking forward to to seeing how his set played out was Louis Anderson because I had spent weeks, you know, months talking with him about his set, and it just so happened that I couldn't see his warm up set or his taping because my schedule in Montreal didn't coincide with him. But you saw him, mm-hmm. uh, his warm up set, and he was great. Right. So we all kept in constant communication throughout the festival to make sure that our people who um, had problems in their sets or even if they didn't have problems in their sets, we still maintained communication to ensure that they had the best taping possible. Yeah, that's a good way of um, distilling it down. Yeah. So it's crazy. And so every um, set that people did, they were, for the most part, given a warm-up set. Right. And there are these scattered venues across Montreal and it's really surreal. I mean, Louis Anderson, watching him, he's a guy that did a gala. So right. like, how many people are in, what, in the audience for uh, like a gala? Oh, God, there was a, several thousand. So I mean, these huge, epic, big shows with multiple camera shoots. And then seeing Louis in Theater St. Catherine, which right. is like a you know 90-seat little theater. Right. It reminds me of the lab a little bit here mm-hmm. at the Improv, where it's real intimate, and you're right up on the crowd, and you have this legend like Louis playing this place that normally you know, sees nothing against it, but it's very like uh, musical comedy and kind of sketch shows and stuff like that. And you have this guy like Louie and I think Louis Black played there. George Wallace played there. It's these small little clubs that are hosting these legends who are warming up their TV sets, which is insane. Yeah. I mean, it's surreal to me. I mean, seeing Todd Berry and um, Janine Garofalo was there one night and like giving them notes on their set. Yeah. And how did you feel? I mean, for me, sometimes like talking to the, these luminaries, yeah. I'm like, you don't want my notes. Like, well, who am I? It's so funny because I think I talked to you about this before we went up there that, you know, I was giving notes to uh, Louis Anderson the whole time for months talking about his set. And I did the math and I'm like, he's been doing stand up comedy longer than I've been alive because I'm 30 years old and he's been doing it well longer than that. And you feel kind of silly sometimes talking to these legends like that. But then when you catch something that makes their set even better, you're like, oh yeah, I am good at this, or I am yeah. supposed to be doing this, or there is a reason why my position exists. You know, um, one of the highlights for me was working with Greg Proops. I mean, you know Greg; he's yeah. such a great dude. Um, one of the things that 
you know, not just him, but many people at the festival, um, you know, you want to talk about in your set stuff that's going on right now. And, you know, normally when you're warming up a TV set, you're thinking about how um, just to make it as funny as possible. Generally, if you're going to be doing like the Tonight Show or something like that, you're going to tape your set. It's going to air that night or within the week at least. And this is a little bit of a different thing where you're taping a TV set. It might air 11 months down the road. So everybody was wanting to do stuff that was uh, material about current events like Donald Trump. I mean, I'm, I don't know how many sets that you got that had mention of Donald Trump. Like if he wins the election, we're blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 11 months down the road when the set's going to air, it's going to look silly on television. So that was one of the things that I had to work on a lot with comedians. Yeah, and it's, it's hard right now with everything going on for them not to talk about that. Right. And so, I mean, oftentimes you could find somebody who uh, had that in their set and then just change their, you know, the intro to the bit. Like I remember working with Ronnie Chang from uh, The Daily Show. Like he is brilliant. That was the first time I'd ever seen him perform live. And he had one of the, I had, I mean, I had heard so many Donald Trump jokes by the end of the festival, but one of the second to last day, I think it was that I was there, he did a Trump joke that the intro just didn't work um, for his TV set, but it was such a good joke that we sat there trying to make it work, the intro. So we reworked the intro, and he crushed his set. I mean, it was such a brilliant uh, Trump joke comparing uh, Donald Trump um, to Eminem and 8 Mile. And, I mean, I don't want to go into the bit because I can't do it justice, but uh, when you see things like that, you really want to work especially hard to make that joke work for television. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. What, what were, the, were there any standouts or other people that you had never seen before? That yeah, I think I mentioned this with you a few times, but Russell Kane from yeah. th- from England. I'd never heard of the guy. I asked Ben, our UK colleague, and you know he talked about how Russell is. You know he's on television out there and stuff, but I mean he's not like a huge name by any means, and he crushed the festival. Like I told him afterwards, I was like, if you come to the States, I will help you out in any way, in any way I can. Cause it was just amazing. Like, I mean, it's not, I mean, there's a lot of amazing British comics, like, you know, Jimmy Carr, Alan Carr, those guys are great and terrific. I've seen those guys before. I've never seen Russell Kane before. He blew me away. And then also seeing how people kind of evolve and change a little bit. Like Jessica Curson was amazing. She, I just wrote her name down because she was such a standout. Yeah. And it's like, I've seen her for years, but I, I don't know what it was that was different about her. And I've always loved her, but it was like a whole nother level this time seeing her. Maybe it was because I got to see her night in, night out, that type of thing. Um, but she was amazing. What about you? Did you see anybody that stood out to you? A lot of people. I mean, it's funny. I, I book a comedy club right. for a living, but you know, it is, there is a lot of the same people. Mm-hmm. I think being in Montreal and part of it, it's, it's how worldly it is. Right. Like you mentioned, Russell Kane, but there was so many great Australian comics that I'd never seen before. Yeah. Dive Hughes. Yeah, Dive. Um, and a whole list. Yesterday for um, for Levity, the company I work for, they mm-hmm. want everyone to do, um, basically go like send in a list of coverage right. of all the comics we saw. And so I just made this list and I was like, God, I think like a quarter of these, if not more, are Australian comics. Right. Um, and just seeing the professionals that was your first time in montreal right it was my first time in montreal i mean i've, I've gone to other festivals but this is there's nothing like montreal and it, it is the industry festival and and i might have talked about this on on the postcard that you, you listened to earlier but mm-hmm. um um it really puts in perspective that comedy is a business yeah. i mean not that it has to be a business but that you know that 
you know, if you want to make a career in it, like there is this world and this industry around it. And it, it's, it was interesting to me to see a lot of comics and it's sometimes younger comics. When you see them outside of just a, a club in LA and in, in the context of this festival, right. Where the industry is around them and you see how this, how, you know, some for professional and some less professional yeah, and how they deal with, all right, you have two TV sets. What are you working on? The ones that were like here, you know, they sent their transcript in three weeks early versus the ones like, it's like, all right, they're going on in two hours and we have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely have some stories of people that I won't name names of, but I mean, I was blown away at some of the people who I thought were more professional than they were. I mean, I can't imagine, I never imagined that there would be people who would be taping a TV set that's going to air to millions of people. And they show up to Montreal with no idea what they're going to do. And I mean, it's this, I don't want this to sound wrong, but I mean, I am going to be seeing you and booking and producing other TV shows in the future. Like, why would you make this so difficult working with me when you know that people are going to ask me my opinion on what the experience was like working with mm -hmm. you. I mean, there was one comic who cursed me out in the middle of the festival, like in the middle of the street. I mean, I'm like, I was like looking around, like, is this really happening right now? And simply put, I'm trying to help everybody have the best experience possible. And I mean, I get with comedy and you probably experienced this as well, that comedy is very much a personal thing for a lot of comedians and a lot of writers. And it's just a very thing that's close to their heart. So I get that. But when you have those experiences in a place where like, you know that this is such an industry heavy thing. I mean, there was a few people who <laughs> that just, I'm like still in shock by that it happened like the negative experience, but yeah. that's obviously very, very small percentage. I mean, for the yeah. majority, it was great experience working with everybody. And you said 300 comics and yeah, I think, you know, 95% yeah. were easy. To, and then you know, in some of them that they're such artists and so brilliant, and you know you you worry about them until the minute they get on stage. You're like, all right, they got it. And they just you kind of, you know, they're gonna do what they're gonna do. And but they're also cool, right? Um, and you know, I I feel like my reputation is usually that I'm pretty even tempered and yeah. even keeled, and you know, just be cool. Everything's yeah. fine. I feel like you're like a step beyond that. So to even think about someone, yeah. And you know, and you know, I think we try to be conduits to, um, to, you know, especially the industry can be so brutal. Right. And there are so many assholes and yeah. comics dealing with crazy agents and managers and TV producers, like for us to be, Hey, we're just here to help, you know, remembering that not all people in the industry yeah. are looking just to, you know, suck you dry for all your talent. No, no, we just want to help you. Yeah. My, my whole career has been built on trying to make other people look better, whether it was producing TV hosts and, or producing talent for TV shows. Like, if they look good, I look good. Mm -hmm. And I try to always express that to people. And for the most part, people get it. But you're always going to get a few people who just want to battle you on everything and they don't even know why they're battling you. Right. I, I One more standout that I'll mention is um, Matt Donaher. Yes. Who's this great comic. He's, he's really smart, good one-liners, and um, just brilliant writer mm -hmm. who did Conan earlier this year and then was a new face. Yeah. And... I think every year it seems like there's one or two maybe new faces. It's their first time. This is their big first time on the big stage in front of the industry who got scooped up to be on a gala. Yeah, a big one too. The CW gala that was hosted by Howie Mandel. So that was as a vetter for me, like my one moment to shine because, you know, 
you were dealing with the Lewis Blacks, and I, yeah. most of my um, clients <laughs> right, right, right. Were, um, were the younger comics that were doing TV for the first time, and they're doing LOL, which you can basically do anything. Right. But for Matt to get on this, and then it was so squeaky clean. Yeah. So even his, you know, he's a pretty clean comic. Oh, yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, but any... um. We can cut out that weird, like, <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. It was an authentic moment. Um, but then to, to, to have no sexual references whatsoever, not, none of that. So to see him and um, actually get to work with him and, and, you know, tell him you can't do this or maybe you can, you know. Right. And um, how cool and appreciative he was and his, his agent and manager. And like, it, it's. Oh, yeah. You know, to see young people and, and when they're cool as fuck. Well, yeah, their career is going to be good. Speaking about him, I was impressed because I was at the rehearsal for that gala that he was on. So I'm seeing him um, walk out there right after Jay Farrell walked out there, right after Joe Coy walked out there, right after, um, I'm trying to think who else was on that gala. But I mean, it was a mega gala. There was no, there was no like non-headliner on that gala. And during rehearsal, seeing him walk out there and own the stage and act like he belonged there is a huge deal. Like seeing this guy who, yeah, he did Conan, but Conan is a singular performance. Like you're the only stand-up comedian on that perform on that show. But seeing him go up there, tape something that was with all these people who are mega stars was pretty cool to see. And I know you yeah. had been working with him, so that was that was I knew, I was thinking about you actually when Aww. I saw him walk on stage. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I mean, if you haven't been to Montreal, I highly recommend it, especially if you're a young comic. I I, I know it's a lot of money, um, but if you, if you can save up, if you're a young comic, seeing stand-up in this world, you know, I wish when I was doing stand-up um, yeah. that I'd seen it because it, it, it really is such an education. You know, this is, you know, of course there are ways around it. There, there are ways um, you can build your career it doesn't require that you go through this route. You know, there's um, tons of great comics that were not a new face. But right. if you want to see how this industry works and see, maximize your opportunity to have a successful career as a stand-up, it's, you'll just see how, how it operates. And even if you're not a comic, even if you're in some capacity of the comedy world like myself, I mean, it was an eye-opener for me as somebody who, you know, spends almost every night in comedy clubs. It's good to get in a different arena where you're around it. You're just around different stuff. Like, like you had mentioned, I had never seen so many international comedians at once and to see how solid they are. And I mean, obviously it sounds kind of, I don't know, arrogant as a, as an American to say that, you know, comedians in America are better or anything like that. But I mean, there's some, there was some British acts and some Australian acts that were just like, wow, I need to go to other parts of the world to and see them. Italian. Italian as well. <laughs> oh boy, that guy was fun. I no, won't name any names. There was an Italian comic that um apparently you said he did some research and he's he's big huge time. in Italy. Like he apparently he can't walk down the streets in in Italy and I mean he <laughs> I don't I don't know how to describe it, but it was like Did he give the microphone a blowjob? No, he didn't. Oh, okay. I'm disappointed. You told me about that. But it was I, I don't know. The thing that I took most from Montreal, I think, was like the working on the other end of things, like working on the because each night we would sit down and we would talk about who did well that night and then pace the lineups like who would go first, second, third, fourth and close and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's something you do a lot, I'm sure, at the improv. I will say that that was to me the most rewarding part um, was so at the end of every night, 
you know, we were all given our assignments. We were out at these clubs, watching comics, taking copious notes. And then um, there were four or five of us would sit around this table. And so we're like, all right, CW Gala is tomorrow. Let's go through. And like, Josh, who do you see tonight? And it'd be like, all right, Greg Proops, he's on top of his game. He, you know, he killed it tonight. We can put him anywhere in the lineup. Right. And then there's the ones, all right, this person was struggling. I think it was just the crowd. Yeah. But just the science behind it. And obviously I do that every single night at Hollywood Improv is right. pace these lineups. But the stakes are lower. Obviously you want there to be a flow to the show mm-hmm. and you know balance all these egos. But for a huge TV taping, it's you know you get one shot. And so you, you need to make sure that if someone's struggling or their set's not good, that, you know, I, I've never thought of that idea of protecting. Like, right. Yeah, that was interesting too, because also, I mean, there was other factors other than just like uh, comedians. I mean, there was sketches in between. Sometimes there was act breaks. Sometimes right. there was intermissions. Like there was, you know, stuff that could potentially slow down, um, you know, the laughter in the room. And there were so many factors to consider. I mean, there would be some nights where we would just be looking at that and go, well, what do we do with this? Like, and eventually, I don't think there was any like huge mishaps because we really, we, we took two hours each night to look at these shows. And usually it was about like six shows a night that we were looking at. Um, but for me, that's something that I've never really done on a TV show because TV shows, I mean, like America's Got Talent was a big one where I would do stuff and I would just be working on, you know, comics when other people would be working on singers and stuff like that. So, it was it was a good experience for me to learn that, and I guess for you on another level. Yeah, it, yeah, with the stakes so much higher. Yeah, um, and I don't think most people think about that, and uh, including you know even show producers that I know in LA that right, you know they're just like, all right, we got six free comics, have fun guys, yeah. and just you, but like there there really should be a rhyme or reason to energy levels, and you know not wanting to have three you know low energy you know one-liner comics in a row and um so that was really cool i mean and i talked about this a lot like in la on the one hand we're spoiled Mm -hmm. and every night is its own festival right but also it's not a a live theater town yeah and you know oops uh granted you know on any given night any of the clubs and any of these small shows can be packed and granted in montreal it's a week and it's everything packed in but to be going from venue to venue venues that are you know 50 you know uh, you know um, capacity to you know 5000 right. they're all packed and everyone's killing everyone's great and i was thinking the whole time like i wish la <laughs> had that culture yeah because we have all the talent yeah it, it's interesting i think i think it's so successful in montreal just because people put their for the most part people put their egos aside and in la they don't just because it's the day-to-day thing. And I don't think you could go to like any any club here in LA and see, I mean, there was galas where like Brian Posehn opened a gala. Mm-hmm. That dude closes shows. You know what I mean? Like there was shows where, I'm trying to think of other examples, but you know, you had, you had guys like Louis Anderson going up like second mm-hmm. or Louis Black. Didn't Louis Black open a show? I think he opened it, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, these people put their egos aside and just did it. You know, they, it's for some reason, I just think it's something in LA that you just, I don't know how to explain it, but it's, I mean, it's the ego capital of the world. You're not going to get yeah. people to put it aside. Um, well, there's Montreal for you. I would, the one <laughs> last one, I, I'd never seen JB Smooth. Oh yeah. Live. Live. Yeah. And to see him, you know, 
destroy. And of course, he you know did twenty minutes. What was supposed to be yeah. an eight minute set yeah. um, in front of like ninety people at Comedy Works one night was just another level of performance. Yeah. performance and showmanship that was just like that's fucking it's, amazing it's so funny that you say that because he did uh he did 20 minutes at uh theater saint catherine also doing a warm-up set and that dude put so much energy into a set and I, I was blown away like seeing him just crush in front of i think there might have been 50 people in the audience mm-hmm. and he was performing like it was fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool to see, seeing guys not phone it in, Yep, you know, that they very easily could have. I mean, he wasn't getting paid for that individual performance. I mean, this dude makes money on the weekends doing a show. And he, he acted like it was like he was getting paid 50,000. Yeah. You know, God bless him. Yeah. Artist. True artist. Exactly. And I guess another funny thing worth mentioning is like, you know, we'd have our meeting would start at 1am and we were in a small room next to the bar in the Hyatt where... (laughs) I mean, that's the other epic part of Montreal is the, the bar, the Hyatt bar most nights is that's the epicenter of yeah um, schmoozing, I would say. Right. And, you know, that bar is packed and one night Comedy Central is buying the bar and one night Funny or Die or whatever it Netflix, is. Netflix, yeah. So it's everyone in the industry and every artist and just getting trashed and we're in the, we're in the small room next door working. Well, I think the funniest thing to me was I would go to roast battle uh, each night and go to the viewing party that was upstairs where there was an open bar in between, like I would get out of the last show that I was at at like 1145 or midnight and then have an hour to do nothing. So I would go and, and hang out with all my friends up at the viewing party and have a couple drinks and then go to the meeting, mm-hmm. which is hilarious because in what other profession can you do that? You know, which I got to commend you on. You only had one crazy night. That, that was maybe my greatest accomplishment as a human was to go to Montreal for a week and yeah, Friday night got a little loose. <laughs> there was a dance party, but um, other than that, yeah, I didn't drink. Just for me, I mean, we don't have to get into yeah, my yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I just, I mean, I was, I'm exhausted still. We're recording this three days after I got back from from Montreal, and I'm sore, like I'm tired. And it's not just because of like partying and stuff like that, but all the work. I, yeah. I mean, I commend you. You you were very smart about what you did up there, because <laughs> not me. Not me. No, I mean it was it was still a lot of fun. Yeah. Anyway, let's go on to other stuff that we can talk about. Yeah. I mean, you're 30 years old, still a baby, <laughs> a young sapling in the forest that is comedy careers. I like that. What um, how long have you been booking? Like, just give what's what's the quick uh, well origin story. I mean, I grew up in comedy clubs because my uncle is was a stand up comedian. Um. And he, I grew up with just a single mom. So he kind of took me under his wing down in San Diego when uh, Bud opened the La Jolla Improv. My uncle actually did like the tile for the La Jolla Improv and in order to get stage time from Bud. And every time I see Bud, he always brings that up. But, um, you know, my uncle was a door guy at the comedy store in La Jolla also. And then um, like Comedy's always been in my blood. I was one week old and I've seen videotape of my uncle doing bits of about me on stage. So That's it was hilarious. like there was no choice that I was going to end up in this profession. I said no to this profession at first. I was a journalist with like uh, outlets like the LA Times and San Diego Union Tribune. But when I came up here from San Diego at 21, uh, my uncle was working on a TV show. They needed somebody to be a uh, voiceover director 
And I was doing the LA Times that day and that show at night. The director of that show got fired after a week. So I became the director at 21 years old. That's like a straight out of a inspirational yeah. story. Yeah. So at that point, it was with all comedians. And I had, you know, grown, grown up in the comedy club scene. Guys like my, my uncle was opening for guys like Gabriel Iglesias, Paul Rodriguez, George Lopez, guys like that. So I was always around big time comics. But once I moved up here, I started regularly um, coming up to the improv and, you know, the comedy store, but mainly the improv and hanging out and just started getting immersed in this scene even more so without I was starting to be recognized as somebody who knew comedy uh, beyond just being involved with my uncle. So I started booking shows like, I don't know, a year later on this show called Latino 101 for Nouveau TV which was CTV at the time, I think. Mm -hmm. And I gave a lot of people there, like a lot of people who are doing very well now, some some of their first TV credits, like Melissa Villasenor, Jade Catapretta, uh, Michelle Buteau, uh, Gina Brion, um, just a lot of Latino. Ladies. Yeah, a lot of, actually that's <laughs> yeah. true, a lot of, a lot of ladies. Awesome. Um, and then I brought in a lot of like uh, famous Latinos as well and some non-famous Latinos or I mean some famous non-Latinos. Like I worked with uh, Godfrey on that show, Edward James Olmos, Carlos Alas Rocky, just, and it was a blast. And so- Edward James Olmos, one of the uh, stand-up legends. Yeah, exactly. Actually, the only time he's ever done comedy was on that show. Stand-up and yeah. deliver. <laughs> I'm sure that's been- uh, Done many before. times. Uh, Meta World Peace, Run Our Test. The first time he ever did comedy was on that show. And then all of a sudden he started playing the improvs. So Yeah, he headlined a couple of shows there. Yeah. Um, so I did that and then I realized how much I liked it and I was producing shows at the time too. Um, I produced like a show for ESPN called around the horn and then just got more and more involved in comedy related things like always writing. And I, I found a kind of a combination of the two when I started producing like TV hosts, like I produced Jerry Springer on a show called baggage on the road. Um, I worked with Kirk Fox on a talk show called the test. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, I, I've always kind of found a way to work comedy into whatever I'm doing. America's got talent came out of the blue. That's, that's what kind of changed the game for me was I had gone through a little bit of a lull for about, I don't know, nine months. I couldn't get a job on a show. I had gone back to like writing journalistically and I created a blog. The blog got some attention. Somebody from America's Got Talent saw what I was doing with the blog. Uh, I was doing crazy things like jumping out of airplanes, getting tattoos, doing stuff that I'd never done before. That was what the blog was all about? Yeah, it was. it's called the Discomfort Blog. I still do it every once in a while, but things have gotten a little crazy for me to not be able to do it as mm -hmm. much. Um, somebody on America's Got Talent saw what I was doing, a former coworker who I'd worked with on Latino 101. She said, why don't you come in and interview for this social media position? I did that, got the job. Um, I Comedians started finding out that I was working on that show. They, of course, asked me for advice on how to audition. And I helped them get a bunch of auditions. One of those people was Taylor Williamson, who I had grown up with in San Diego. Uh, Taylor ends up crushing his audition. They ask him how he heard about it, about the audition, because it was an open call. And he mentions my name. And they basically switched me from doing social media stuff to booking comedians on the show. 
I ended up doing that for a couple of years. I was also recommending people to that show for years before because I knew people. Like I recommended Melissa Villasenor, who did well on the show. But when Taylor got second place on that show, it basically changed everything for me. I made friends with the showrunner on that show who gave me an open door to go and pitch him any comedy-related projects. And that's kind of when I started getting my foot in the door for pitching shows. Um, so when people ask me what it is that I do now, I just I say all the things that I do, and it's hard for me to say. I just kind of say I'm a producer because right now what I've been doing has just been pitching shows and selling shows. And this year's been a good year for that. Got a deal at uh, Telepictures. Uh, last week when we were in Montreal, I got a deal at MTV. So cool. Um, so it's, but it's all related to comedy. Like the deal at Telepictures was uh, two comedians bringing me an idea and I formatted it into a TV show idea. Same thing happened with the deal at MTV. Two comedians came to me with a TV show idea and I formatted it into a TV show idea. So I'm kind of finding what my niche is right now. I think my niche is um, just taking, working with comedians, collaborating with them, and turning their ideas into something that I think networks would want to buy. And what is that process like? What do, what do they bring you and what are you molding? So, like, uh, one of the ideas, I'll talk about the one which I have all the paperwork completely signed and done with the MTV one is still in, you know, mm -hmm. negotiations on my contract and stuff. But uh, that one, Jamar Neighbors had this idea for a, a game show and he took it to uh, Josh Nasser and who they were really good friends with. Jamar presented like 20 pages of paperwork, like uh, just thoughts and ideas mm -hmm. for this game show. Josh whittled it down to probably like 10 pages and then came to me and said, I think this is a really good idea. What do you think? Cause Josh had known I had done a bunch of game shows. I've, I've done like probably five game shows for game show network in the past two years. And I took it and then formatted it into a game show that had like three different rounds would be clear and concise, not jumbled all over the place. Something that um, I think addresses something that's pertinent into uh, current day, like current events, that type of thing. Um, and something that I think people would be entertaining and excited to watch. And then looked at who I think might be a buyer for that show, which networks might be interested in it. Cause it's kind of a bro-y uh, college themed show. You're not going to want to take that to like oxygen network or something, sure. which I have contacts at oxygen network, but I'm not going to take them that idea because they would just laugh me out the room. So we identified networks that would be good for it. Production companies that would be good for it. And every project's kind of different because sometimes you can go straight to a network uh, sometimes you should go to a production company first because the idea isn't quite there and they can help you with the development of it. Sometimes you don't have the resources that a production company might have. So with that one, we sold it to a production company. And uh, the one that I, I just went with uh, MTV at, I went straight to MTV because it didn't need any more development on it. It was ready to go. I knew they would be um, a buyer for this and it happened quick. With the other one, it took like nine months. Like it was a long time. So, I mean, every process is different, but for the most part, I think comedians haven't made, they, they haven't done the transition to television by themselves. So I think it's sometimes good to work with somebody who understands comedians like me and uh, understands what networks want 
like me. And I don't think there's necessarily that many people who do that role because it's hard to start off with like a general idea and whittle it down into something. But I think that's what my career path is going into now. Do you have any advice on just pitching in general? Like when you go in these rooms, um, what is your technique? God, what have you learned? I mean, I'm sure it's pretty broad. Yeah, it's really, really difficult to address that sometimes. Like for me, I tend to just have like a really good time. Um, Jamar is one of my favorite people to go into a room with because he just doesn't care. Like he just treats it like he's meeting a friend and he's really loose. I like to be really loose. I try not to take it too serious because um, in the grand scheme of things, we're just making television. You know, it's not like we're doing... You know, everybody always says curing cancer. It's not like we're curing cancer. So we just try to go in, have a good time, um, and just talk to them like we would be talking to anybody. Like, we try not to be too formal. Like, I remember one time me and Jamar and Josh, we went into, I think it was either MTV or CAA, and Jamar's wearing like a cutoff t-shirt, no sleeves. And we go in there and we just start talking, like shooting the shit, not even anything about the project for the first like five minutes. We're just laughing back and forth, joking around. And I think it depends on who it is that you're meeting with. But for the most part, if you go in there just joking, having a good time, and then lead into the business stuff, I think people have a little bit more fun with you Mm -hmm. because these people sit and listen to pitches all day long. Like I kind of took a little bit from the advice that I would give to comedians when they would go in and audition for America's Got Talent. I would always say, uh, you know, you get 90 seconds to perform, but before your 90 seconds start, show off your personality because they're judging you from the moment you walk in. It's the same thing with pitching people at a network. They're judging you from the moment they meet you before you even start talking about the project they're going to be judging you. They're going to be seeing if they want to, if it's going to be fun to work with you. I mean, I know that's what it's like when I ask people or when I hire people for a show, which isn't all the time, but I want to be working with people that are fun. I mean, I think that's why we all got into this business. So, yeah. And that, I mean, it circles back to Montreal and these TV sets and everything. And, and kind of the theme of the show is just, it always comes down to that. Who mm-hmm. do people want to work with? I mean, you, your talent has to be so, ridiculously insane for anyone to tolerate a yeah. diva. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a small handful of people that, that can do that, but also not to advocate forever, <laughs> not being cool. Right. But yeah, that that's people want to, if they're going to work with you on a show for the next few months or years of their life, yeah, they want it to do it. Someone that's going to be great. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that is forgotten. People just, you're right. I'm trying to think of like, there's been some shows where I've been absolutely miserable. And I mean, I've only ever quit one TV show. And it was because I was working 100 hours a week with people that I didn't enjoy being around. And after a month out of four months, I was like, I'm done. I like, I didn't choose this career to be miserable. And I think that can be forgotten a lot of the time like I've been doing this now for a little over nine years and I've only quit one tv show because for the most part I think people get that yeah so what what is I mean do you have a goal in mind that you're working towards or just see how it organically plays out yeah I mean I want to be a showrunner like 
the head guy, the guy who's the executive producer and makes all the final calls on things and has to be the liaison between the network and the show and that type of thing. It's hard to get in that position. There's very few guys like that. I mean, there's the guys like Chuck Lorre and, you know, he's the one that everybody always knows. There's, but I mean, there's, and then there's people like, uh, you know, Simon Cow who are just the executive producer and has their name on it and they don't run the show. But I like playing the game of chess. Like I like moving the pieces around. You know, I like the nuts and bolts of things, the day-to-day operations. And it's really hard to get to that position. I mean, most of the time when people get in that position, it's because it's a show they created. And it's usually not your first show. Like usually you have to create a few shows before you get to that role. Mm -hmm. Some people can work their way up, you know, from... PA to associate producer to producer to supervising producer to co-EP to EP to showrunner. Like you know the chain. Yeah, there's a big chain. Um, and is craft services ever in that chain? <laughs> no, but they're my favorite people on set. <laughs> I enjoy them a little too much. But I mean, showrunner, like somebody who creates shows and then gets to run their shows and execute their vision. That's what I want to do. And it's, I mean, it's hard. Like I've I've gotten quite a few deals and then nothing happens with those deals. But um, that ultimately, I mean, people have always told me that they think I should be a manager because I know comedians pretty well and how to communicate with them. But I always tell people, I'm like, I have enough trouble managing my own career. Mm -hmm. Like, why why do I want to bring on other people? But I don't know. I think it would be just that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I love writing shows, but in the grand scheme of things, like... um, (sighs) You know, I want to reach the highest level of what it is in my industry. And I think that would be cool. I think running a network one day would be awesome. But then again, you know, you're 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 um, helping other people get their visions done. I, I'd like to see my vision get accomplished once. So. So do you how much credit do you give just hanging out at a club for, you know, where you're at? Well, it's so funny because I owe everything to the comedy clubs, especially the improv. Like, I mean, and this is, I'm not just saying this because I'm sitting here with you, but honestly, this place has been, I always say it's like my cheers, but it's basically like my home. I have gotten everything from this place. Somebody who, you know, first and foremost, I met my girlfriend here. Uh, I met her, which was in the bar uh, where the lab is now. I met her there a year and a half ago, a little over a year and a half ago. Uh, I met uh, the booker of The Tonight Show, Michael Cox, I met here, who has recommended me for numerous jobs. And then I've met numerous comedians like, you know, Jamar um, here at the Improv. Like, this is where I got to know him, where he felt comfortable enough one day to you know, say, Hey, do you want to work on this project with me? Which has got me a deal somewhere. I mean, everything has been from the grassroots of just going out to comedy clubs. And all those three people are people that I met at the improv. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can go down the list of even more people. Um, I think also people, comedians respect me because they see me in the comedy club scene, not just in an office. Uh, I can't stress how important that is that people let comedians see you in their place of business, not just in your place of business. Uh, I mean, I think it's best to see comedians in the rawest form rather than on a tape uh, because you can see if that tape was edited Mm -hmm. or you can see how the crowd is reacting. You can just see it in a more natural state. I mean, it's, it's been, I owe everything to the comedy clubs, especially the improv. Awesome. Um. <clears throat> well, Josh, do you have any, any parting thoughts or ideas or things you want to impart to 
I think no comics or anyone listening. I think the number one thing is like you got to be constantly changing who you are and hustling and adapting. I mean, I myself, if I didn't create that blog a few years back, I wouldn't have got the job with America's Got Talent. If I, I mean, I'm, I do a podcast like you do a podcast. I mean, you have to adapt with the times. You got to be constantly doing things. You can't just sit back and wait for other people to create opportunities for you. I think that's the one thing that I've always stressed is that I got to be constantly moving. I have never done anything the traditional route. I think anybody who's ever gotten anything in this business has done has not done it the traditional route. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, like, I've never gone through a writer's program. I've never gone through an internship. I've never gone through anything like that. Everything that I've gotten has been simply on my own hustle. I don't have an agent or a manager. I set up my own meeting at, meetings at MTV and NBC and all these different places. And, I mean, I got all those opportunities simply just by going out and meeting people. Don't be afraid. For the most part, people are going to listen to you mm-hmm. if you show some sort of initiative. So keep working. I mean, I think that is so valuable. It is easy to sit back and watch months tick away when you're not doing anything. But that, I think that's really cool that, like, you know, a blog, especially one yeah. of taking you out of your comfort zone is yeah. what got you back in the game. That's exactly it. And, I mean, I think, uh, I think the one thing that makes you most uncomfortable is the thing that you should try. That would be it. I love it. Well, thanks for coming on. No, thanks for having me. It was fun. I'm yeah. glad we got to continue Montreal. Yeah, and you'll, you'll come do it again. I think um, the listeners will love to see. I want to, once you can announce, you know, the MTV thing. Yeah. And, and you know, I want to um, explore more because that's the path I'm on to right. making TV shows. Yeah. And, and creating content. Um, so. Absolutely. Would love to. You're a blessed soul. Um, as I say at the end of every episode, to the listeners and anyone, work on your craft endlessly, whatever that might be. Be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. This has been Gatekeeper. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Stevens, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab.